welcome back to I'm Open. We are so excited to have you with us for episode 50. Today we're going to be talking about nearsightedness, impressionism, and Halloween costumes. I can promise you, ladies and gentlemen, that there is no other sports podcast in the world that covers such a variety of topics. Nobody's talking about impressionist paintings. Nobody's talking about the real, real details of nearsightedness and farsightedness. And nobody's talking about the logistics of Halloween costumes like we are. This is sports for the people. This is sports for dummies, but you're not dumb. We love you. I'm Open Podcast. I'm Open Family. Let's roll. I am blessed to be back with you guys today for our 50th episode. It is a historic moment for the I'm Open family around the world. Thank you guys so much for all the support, all the love. You have you, you have just kept pushing me forward, motivating me, and propelling our awesome podcast forward here. Episode 50 and 5,000 more to come. I'm Open family. Let's keep going. Let's keep growing. We have some awesome stuff to jump into this week. First off, I want to talk about the momentous heavyweight boxing matchup we just saw between Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury. Now, we've talked about it in the lead up to the fight. Now, this is usually not a boxing podcast, but as you know, if there's an exciting story, if there's an interesting story, we will cover it. We will talk about it. Now, we talked with Evan a couple uh, weeks ago here on the pod in the lead up to the fight about the very interesting training tactics both of these guys have been using uh, to get ready for the fight. And um, if you really want to hear us go in depth on that one, you can listen to episode 47 with my guy Evan Holly. We were talking about that. Now, both of these guys are doing an awesome job of bringing back the juice to the heavyweight division. We know heavyweight boxers have across time been the most famous of all boxers. Of course, we all know Rocky Balboa, but also real, actual, real-life boxers like Mike Tyson and Muhammad Ali. Those are heavyweights. Those are the guys who are superstars around the world, superstar athletes. Now, boxing, as of late, hasn't quite had that top billing, hasn't quite been a primetime sport that people watch. But over the last couple years here, as we've seen Anthony Joshua, as we've seen Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder, Andy Ruiz, all these different contenders in the heavyweight division, all with fun personalities other than Joshua, but all with fun personalities, interesting things going on. It makes it fun. It makes it a lot of fun. Now, we were talking about both of these guys' training styles, which are very unique. And just a quick recap, uh, Fury was... I forget the exact number, but but uh, Tyson Fury was basically masturbating as much as he possibly could in a way to sort of keep his testosterone pumping at extreme levels in preparation, anticipation for the fight with Deontay Wilder. Now, on the other end of the spectrum here, Wilder, I'm not sure about his personal habits there in terms of pleasuring himself, but I knew, do know that he said he was working out with large Cuban Lynx chains so he was wearing like super heavy jewelry as a workout, partly as a motivational tool, probably partly to, to weigh him down a bit and also just to make him feel like a straight badass. So both of these guys, really unique ways of preparing for the fight. There was a lot of buzz around the fight. And 
Tyson Fury. It was a wild story. He went through rehab, depression, had a lot of weight fluctuation, and now he has fought his way back to the pinnacle. He is the heavyweight champion of the world after knocking off Deontay Wilder and knocking him down, I believe, in the, in the seventh round between two, two great heavyweights. Now, in the aftermath, we're playing the blame game a little bit here to start off the show because in, in the aftermath of that fight, Deontay Wilder has said that, you know, it was really a big mistake on his part to wear a a giant costume that was 40 to 45 pounds on his way into the ring. Now, one thing I love about boxing, being a very sort of naive and ignorant, I can admit that you can't ask me who my top 10 favorite welterweight guys are. I'm not going to really be able to tell you who I'm going to guess Manny Pacquiao if he's still out here. So it's okay. It's all right. Uh, but I will say I really like when the boxers come in, they have their whole kind of crew around them coming in, all their friends, their family, their trainer, whoever they want to come in with them. Usually they have some sort of a costume, a cloak on or a robe, some entrance music. And it really is fun. It really builds up the almost WWE aesthetic of a boxing match, even though I'm sure, you know, WWE and professional wrestling uh, organization sort of copied that aspect, the introductory sequence from boxing. Um, it's really fun and it makes it feel like almost like superheroes are going into battle or cartoon characters or something like that. It really adds to the fun. And this one felt even more like a superhero because Deontay Wilder was basically dressed up as like a super, I would call it, I guess, a combination of like a Transformer and the Black Panther. It was like a giant kind of rope or or maybe um, maybe like the Terminator mixed with the Black Panther or something like that. It was really cool. It was a giant bejeweled suit. He looked dope when he came out. He had a guy like rapping with him in his um, little entourage there as they walked down towards the ring. And it was really a cool entrance. It really was. But in the aftermath of the fight, he said his legs were a little weak from carrying that huge suit on his way in, and he regrets that, and he kind of thinks that that might be part of the reason that he lost. Now, we'll kind of get to see if this is true or not. There is going to be a third, uh, there's going to be a third rematch, a rubber match here, coming up in July between Wilder and Fury. It should be a huge blockbuster fight. And we'll kind of get to see what kind of costumes the guys are going to wear, and if they're going to impede their athletic ability during the fight. But I think it's interesting here in the aftermath, Deontay is already saying, you know what, it was my mistake with the suit and the suit threw me off. And I don't know, like I was kind of, I'm rooting for both of these guys, I gotta be honest. I, I think they're both really good guys. I think they're both great sports figures to have right now in the world. Uh, they both seem like kind of positive, open-minded guys, supportive of one another. And, you know, good good dudes. Even though they, they fight for a living, they both seem like pretty good dudes. So it's not, I you know, I was kind of, I guess, pulling for, for Deontay if you had to choose one. But I'm still happy to see Tyson Fury come back after a lot of the issues he's had. And he's basically like a real-life version of Brad's Pitt crazy sort of like Irish gypsy family in that one movie where Brad Pitt like fights a bunch of... Um, I'm really blanking on it right now, but you guys know what I'm talking about. There's like a sort of movie where Brad Pitt is like a sort of street fighter type guy, and he's a part of these sort of Irish gypsy mob type thing, and Tyson Fury is literally a real life version of that. I'm not being like 
prejudiced or judgmental or anything. He literally, his name, like, you know how every boxer has their little name, Floyd Money Mayweather. Um, For example, uh, his is Gypsy King. So he's embracing that part of his lifestyle. Um, And I'm not going to do the crazy, um, (laughs) I'm not going to try my crazy Irish Gypsy accent yet. But maybe if he gets another victory. But um, it was it was fun to see him win too. And they're both good guys. They're and um, I just for Deontay, part of what's hard is you know we heard that he was training with these gold chains. So I mean, obviously, if you put on a a, a gold chain equivalent to the suit, which was about forty five pounds, you're probably going to have a, a terrible, terrible crick in your neck, and you're not going to be able to sleep well, which isn't going to get you really ready for the fight. Anyway, you want to be well-rested. So I understand why he wouldn't, you know, practice with chains that were that large or whatever. But, you know, I feel like it's a situation where you got to try the suit on before. You really got to try the suit on before to know if it's going to work in the big moment. And I feel like he was so excited about that. Obviously, he was prepared for, for boxing and he was prepared for, for, the, for the fight. But you got to be prepared for your costume as well. And... You know, it makes me kind of think of, you know, the first day of school or the day before a job interview. And I don't know about you guys, but when I, you know, when I've got the first day of school coming up the next day, I don't go to school um, anymore, but uh, I did. And I would, I would lay out my, my clothes. I would pick out my outfit. I would try it on. Make sure. Does the shirt go with the pants? Does the shoes go with the shirt? Okay, does my hair look good with this ensemble, right? Does this match fit my skin tone and complement my body, right? You're thinking about those things. You don't want to just try it on the day of school, then suddenly be in a panic, like, oh my God, these pants didn't fit how I expected. Oh my God, this shirt too small for me. It was so good in fourth grade, but now in fifth grade, it doesn't fit that well. You don't want to go through that. I even remember when I was playing uh, you know, sports as a, now I still play sports, but not in the same way that I, you know, organizationally did as a younger man and, 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 or as a young kid in rec leagues and local community, community leagues, it's travel teams, etc. Right. So when I would get my uniform, I wouldn't do this every night before the game, but when the first time I would get my uniform, I would always bring it home, try it on, stand in front of the mirror, and kind of see, how do I look? Does this number look good on me? Should my shirt be tucked in? Should it be tucked out? How high should I pull up my socks? Uh, how much should I tuck in my shirt? How high should I pull up my shorts? All these things. You want to make sure you look good when you get out there and you want to make sure you feel good. So I really hope Deontay tried on his costume before he went out. And I'm disappointed. If that's really the reason that that brought him down. I mean, he was doing this weight training he mentioned with the big Cuban links. He said he was doing that sort of a weight training, but obviously it's not enough. It's not as big as this giant bejeweled Black Panther Terminator costume. It's just not, you can't replicate that size. A lot of people were saying, you know, you don't skip leg day, LOL. You know, you skipped leg day. That's why your legs got tired from carrying a 40 pound thing. You know, <laughs> I, I don't think he skipped leg day. I, I don't. The guy's freaking jacked. 
I just think it's a classic situation of they were trying to get the costume just right. They were trying to get all the jewels in the right places and all the different robot arms and everything looking good, ready for Deontay for the big fight night. And he he didn't he he had all these promotional things going on, the way in, the interviews, commercials, different sponsorships, etc. Which that's part of the game. That's part of the job. But to me, it seems like he probably didn't have time to really try it on, look in the mirror, walk around the house, and really just see, does this feel good? Jump up and down, wave his arms around, put like a number one up, maybe put a fist up, wave to his fans, just see how it's going to feel when he wears that. And that's really important. And, you know, I would love to really love to get Deontay on the show. I'm looking forward to it, Deontay, so we can talk about that because I know that he's been through these moments in in first day of school, big interview, the, the day after, and you want a big date, big party that you're going to, and you want to look good. And I'm sure he's he's tried on his outfits ahead of time just to know they were going to be ready to rock. So I'm a little surprised that he didn't have a chance to do it this time. This really reminds me of a story of a Halloween I had growing up as a young young man. And when I say young man, I think I was probably about nine probably about nine or ten years old. We would always go trick-or-treating around the neighborhood with my brother and sister and a bunch of uh, friends of ours, a little squad of friends of ours from the neighborhood. And we grew up in a pretty good trick-or-treating neighborhood. There was a lot of lot of good houses that had some nice candy. One even gave jumbo or king-sized bars. And a lot of nice people, a lot of good kids going out and about in the neighborhood. And my brother that year decided to go as parmesan cheese his costume was parmesan cheese because that was his favorite food and when you say do you mean favorite condiment or or i guess it's not a condiment favorite topping no no it was his favorite food parmesan cheese was his favorite food and he didn't dress up as cheese like he didn't dress up as like a big pile of um white powder because people have thought he was a six-year-old dressed up as cocaine no, they probably wouldn't have, but that I don't know. It wouldn't have been clear that it was Parmesan cheese. It could have been a snowman. It could have been a powdered donut. It could have been a lot of different things. So in our household, anytime you open the fridge, you would find the green shredded Parmesan cheese little tube. And we called that shaky cheese in our family, shaky cheese. So you shake that cheese. And let me tell you, my brother would shake that shit on everything he could. I mean, just anything. Even my man would take cucumbers when it was time to eat our vegetables and douse them just to create a whole pile of Parmesan cheese over his cucumbers before he ate them. Like, really? He put Parmesan on everything. That was his favorite food. So it made sense. Straight from the heart. He's going to be Parmesan cheese for Halloween. And my parents, I don't even know how they found this, but they somehow got him a green cylinder that was like a jumbo version of the Parmesan cheese tube. And it was perfect. It fit his body. I think it was probably like six or seven or eight at the time, more or less. And it fit his whole body. He, My dad put like little straps on it so he could kind of like put it on like over, kind of put overall straps on it so he could have it surrounding his body. And he was Parmesan cheese and it was awesome. And he was getting a lot of compliments. And everybody loved his costume. They had never seen it before. Everybody's used to seeing princesses and Batman and Shrek. But not that many people are used to seeing a life-size bottle 
or or jar or whatever the hell container that comes in of Parmesan cheese. So my brother was getting a lot of compliments. He started off Halloween really hot that year. And soon enough, we got to the part of the neighborhood that was hilly, the hillier part of the neighborhood where a lot of the houses, you have to walk upstairs to get to the home. And I'm not just talking about one quick flight of stairs here to get to the porch. I'm talking about you're going up a solid 30 or 40 steps, which, okay, I know it's not like torture, but as what as six, eight, seven, and, and nine-year-olds or however old me and my, my, my siblings were, it's a lot of steps. Now, Halloween, you do it. The candy is worth it, right? The grind is worth it for the payoff of the candy. Obviously, you do it, but it's an exhausting night. It is an exhausting night, and only the real strong fighters fight through to really get a big bag full of candy in our neighborhood because there's a lot of hills, and there's a lot of steps going up to some of these homes. When we got to this part of the neighborhood, my brother started to realize that, you know, when you're walking on flat ground, it's fine to be wearing a full sort of cardboard cylinder around your body. It doesn't really impede your walking and stepping. But when you're trying to walk upstairs... And you have a full um, sort of stiff cardboard cylinder surrounding your whole body down below your knees, down to sort of shin level, mid-shin, high ankle level. Every time you try to walk up the stairs, your knees and shins bang against the cardboard, bang against the cylinder of the Parmesan cheese bottle. So... This is this is just like the Deontay Wilder situation because you know my brother had tried on, he did he, he did try on the Parmesan cheese. He looked great in it. It fit him perfectly. But did he really try simulating the environment that he was going to have to be in in that night trick or treating in the crunch time that we really needed him to perform at his highest ability? Now, if he would have practiced hustling up and down flights of stairs in his cylinder of Parmesan cheese, he would have known this thing is not going to work. Every time I try to go up a step, my shin bangs right against this cardboard frame of the, of the, of the big Parmesan cheese bottle. This is going to hurt my little, my little legs sooner rather than later. And I might trip over myself. This is going to be extremely frustrating, but he didn't have a chance to do that. So halfway through our trick or treating mission that year, we actually had to go home change my brother's costume, and get back out on the road because he was having just wild uh, shin chafage, right? And that's the stuff. Look, sometimes pain requires beauty or whatever beauty, whatever they, whatever they say, beauty requires pain, something like that. doesn't always have to be true. Sometimes you sacrifice to look good. I understand that. But, you know, this is, this was a classic Deontay Wilder situation for my brother and vice versa. You know, if you're going to do a big costume like that, you got to make sure you test it through all the rigors that you're going to need in the moment to know if it really can stand up to the challenge and stand up to the test. So I, I'm just really excited to see here, July, we've got the third rubber match. Deontay's 1-1, Tyson's 1-1. We're just going to see, I mean, we've been hearing all sorts of tactics like we've heard we've had costumes we've had crazy training styles that nobody has ever heard of before and frankly we didn't really need to hear about so i just can't wait to hear what comes out before this next fight they've got a couple months to get ready and we're all excited about it and i mostly can't wait to see what costumes the guys are going to wear next time
you are listening to I'm Open. Don't forget to give us a rating, write us a review, and tell a friend to listen to the show. While we're playing the blame game here, we turn our eyes to the baseball world. Everybody is super pissed off about the Houston Astros right now. And frankly, it's kind of good for baseball because nobody really gives a shit about baseball in February or March. And now we're talking about it. So congratulations, baseball. If you want to hear about the whole ins and outs, how the Astros really cheated, you're listening to the wrong podcast. Go listen to a real nerdy baseball podcast and they can tell you every single little detail. But basically... It's like baseball Watergate. The Houston Astros for several years have been spying on their other teams using signals by banging shit, potentially by using little buzzers that were taped to their chests. That's still kind of unproven. But we know they were using like banging sounds, banging on top of trash cans and stuff to send little signals when to expect certain pitches. And also uh, using video in order to steal signals from their opponents. You you get the gist. So everybody's pissed at the Houston Astros. A lot of people are really mad saying that they should have to return their World Series titles, that they should have to return, uh, you know, that Jose Altuve, for example, should have to return the MVP award he uh, won. So people are pretty pissed at him. And rightly so. It hurts. Okay? It hurts. When they were doing steroids, they knew, hey, look everybody's got guys on our team doing steroids. Let's not get all worked up about it. But with these guys cheating, spying, they're like, hey, our team's not spying. Well, I think the Red Sox might be spying, but we don't know really. It doesn't seem like other teams have really been spying where we knew everybody was doing steroids. Jason Giambi, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire. Like if you didn't have a, stero- a couple steroids buddies on your team, you weren't fucking playing the game. But now with the whole filming and sounds and potentially little buzzers attached to their nipples and who knows what they're doing, it makes it more complicated. And it's really making everyone in baseball turn against the Astros, guys saying that I'd like to kick their ass already in spring training, which is basically like, you know, practice off season for baseball, starting to ramp up, starting to get ready for the season. We've already seen a bunch of Astros players get hit by pitches where guys were just clearly just throwing straight at the guy's face, not even really trying to hide it. Now, should that be allowed? Should the sport allow you to throw a projectile 95 miles an hour at a guy's face? Um, that's uh, that's for you baseball purists and traditionalists to decide if you think that's nice or not. But that is the way that baseball has has governed itself to solve problems like this. The commissioner has basically said, I'm going to stay out of it. I don't want to really get into this too much now until I figure everything out. Everybody else is really pissed. So this is how baseball self-regulates. They throw baseballs at people's faces to teach them a lesson. America, baby, America. So the one person in this whole thing who actually doesn't seem super fired up and mad at the Houston Astros is a gentleman they call Big Poppy, David Ortiz. Now, he was a legend for the Boston Red Sox. It's not that he's not fired up about the situation. He's just fired up about somebody else. He's not mad at the Astros. He's actually mad at Mike Fierce, who is the basically the whistleblower 
who exposed this whole Astros situation. He had been a member of the Houston Astros back in 2017. Then he left the team and eventually he ended up admitting basically to this whole cheating and kind of explaining some of the system the Astros had been using over the years to cheat and to gain an advantage over other teams. Now, it's kind of crazy that this didn't happen sooner. In sports, we always talk about how sports is a business. You can get traded in a day. You can get cut in a day. Some guys are playing like two, three, four teams in one season. So to assume that you'd be able to keep that tight circle of secrecy and nobody would ever leave and ever tell anything to anybody else or nobody would just in passing tell some girlfriend about it who would then later break up with them and get paid $20,000 by TMZ or maybe $5,000 by TMZ just to expose a situation like that. I mean, how could they be so stupid to think that all of these people in the organization, none of them would ever slip or none of them would ever tell anybody else who might tell somebody else who then might try to use that information for their own personal benefit or gain? It seems pretty naive and short-sighted, for sure, for sure. But Poppy, he is pretty mad at Mike Fears, who was a pitcher on the Astros, now a member of the Oakland Athletics. And this is what he said. He said, I'm mad at this guy, the pitcher that came out talking about it. And let me tell you why. Oh, after you make your money and you get your ring, you decide to talk about it? Why don't you talk about it during the season when it was going on? Why didn't you say, I don't want to be a part of this? Now you look like a snitch. Why did nobody say anything while it was going on? Now, <laughs> this one just makes me laugh. I don't think Poppy's a bad guy. I don't think Poppy's a dumb guy. Let me just put it out there at the beginning. I think he's a very smart guy. Usually I agree with a lot of stuff he says, even though I'm a Yankees fan. I hate the Red Sox. Um, but for the most part, he seems like a nice dude. He's got a nice jolly smile. Uh, but this is the shit that I just can't stand. And this isn't just true in sports. It's true in all walks of life, in business, politics, etc. Right? Somebody comes out, somebody explains the situation, tells about the situation, and then rather than saying, oh, thank you for explaining this to us, we attack that person for not telling us sooner when, hey, if Mike Fears hadn't said it, who would have known? Who would have ever known? They still would be cheating. So when Poppy's saying, why doesn't he say it? Well, it was still going on. It was still going on, Poppy. It was still going on this season. That's why the Nationals, who won the World Series... You had to use a crazy elaborate scheme and a crazy communication system that was really complex, way more than they ever normally did between their pitchers and catchers and the rest of their team because they knew the Astros were cheating. So it was still going on, Poppy. It was. And <laughs> um, it's it's so often, how, you know, we, we expect somebody to tell while they're a part of the team. I mean, then all of your teammates hate you. Then you immediately lose your job. He, he's telling now, I mean, nobody else told other than him, right? So are we really blaming the one whistleblower? Because without him, this scandal wouldn't really have legs, so to speak. And it would just be a scandal or just be a rumor, fake news. That's the difference between a conspiracy theory and, oh shit, you guys are in trouble, is having a source having some evidence, which is what this guy provided. So I just think it's hilarious now. Poppy's pointing finger fingers at this guy for being a snitch when without him, the Astros would still be cheating to this day. And, you know, it's especially comical 
when you consider the background, the person who's saying this, the person who's giving us this opinion. Now, Poppy doesn't like snitches. And you know what? A lot of us don't like snitches. But there's a difference between, you know, snitching on your buddies for staying up too late and pranking each other at the sleepover. Or, you know, calling out a baseball team that literally is undermining the integrity of the entire sport. It's a little bit different. Snitching isn't just all one color. It's not just all one level. There's levels to it, as Meek Mill would say. There's levels to it. So let's just take a a step back here to 2003. Now, at the time, this was the height of the steroids era in baseball. Great times. Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, as we mentioned. Barry Bonds, the legend, guys hitting home runs, guys had heads that were growing and growing every offseason, they had shoulders that looked like fucking watermelons, they had necks that looked like they were about to literally explode, just looking so like veins popping out of everywhere, it literally looked dangerous. This was the height of the steroids era in baseball, the home run era, it was a fun time. And... MLB, Major League Baseball, they kind of were starting to say, okay, this is getting a little too obvious. Um, Grown men's heads and necks are not supposed to grow at an exponential level. That's going to be a little too obvious. People are going to start to wonder what happened to all these guys while they're blowing up like cartoon characters here. So in 2003... Major League Baseball decided to do a preliminary drug testing program. But here's the catch. They promised that all the players who were tested would be immune from the results. Now, official performance-enhancing drug testing was about to begin in the 2004 season. So the MLB Players Association worked in conjunction with Major League Baseball to figure out Basically, how widespread is this issue? How can we attack this? How can we maybe sweep a little bit under the rug? Because you don't want to, at the same time, if baseball goes out and suspends like 70 of their best players, it looks pretty embarrassing for the league as a whole. So you can't have that happen. So through the survey, through the testing, over 100 major league players came back testing positive for performance-enhancing drugs. And you can guess who a lot of these names might have been. One of them was Poppy was Big Poppy? was David Ortiz. Now, this was not released to the public at the time because it was just for investigative purposes. But about seven years later, this list was released and it was divulged that Poppy was on the list. He was one of the folks who tested positive for performance enhancers at the time. So, okay, he doesn't like snitches. Maybe there's a reason why. When you look at his personal statistics, now I don't, we, we don't get deep into stats here on the show. That's not what we're about. But just to kind of demonstrate, he started off on the Minnesota Twins at the age of 21. He stayed there through the age of 26, his first several seasons. During that time, as a member of the Minnesota Twins, that's six seasons, David Ortiz, Poppy, never hit over 20 home runs. And he never had over 75 Runs batted in RBI. That's when somebody else is standing on base, you hit it, and they score. So, never had more than 20 home runs. Never had more than 75 RBIs. That, you know, in that transition period, 2003, he's moving to the Red Sox. 
gets tested positive for performance enhancers, suddenly goes to the Red Sox, 31 home runs. Okay, that's an uptick. Maybe he worked a little bit harder that offseason. The following year, 41 home runs. The following year, 47 home runs. The following year after that, 54 home runs. So suddenly, when this guy was, you know, I'm not trying to say 26 is old or grizzled, but by the 26 years old, you're kind of, you're in the prime of your athletic life. A lot of times by 26, we know if a, if an athlete is going to be a superstar or if they're on that trajectory. And Poppy certainly was not on that trajectory until uh, just happenstance, he switches teams, he suddenly starts hitting a shitload of home runs, he also has this testing, uh, which was <laughs> which was anonymous at the time, or protected at the time, or whatever, whatever it might have been. And just coincidentally, all of those things kind of happen at the same time, and now Poppy doesn't like snitches. I just... It's and I we don't like to get polit we don't like to get political on this show. That's not the point of the show. But with the Ukraine craziness through the whole impeachment process here in this great country. Now we had a whistleblower who was <laughs> who was divulging some information about meetings with Ukrainian officials, and rather than be angry about okay what actual information have have we learned what what what's the issue here a lot of people were angry at angry at the whistleblower for telling us there was an issue which is which is basically what poppy was doing i'm not trying to say that he's a maga person or anything i'm just saying that was his reaction it's like you going to the doctor but in this case, if if it's a whistleblowing doctor, I guess maybe the doctor's wearing like one of those masks or something. So you really don't even know who your doctor is. Or maybe yeah, the doctor's using one of those, those voice changing uh, machines. So you can't really tell who, who your doctor is. But they come in and they're using the voice changer and they're like, you know, I'm sorry to tell. Yeah. You've got a terrible case. Of foot fungus. Now, are you going to be mad at the doctor for telling you this? For being a snitch on your feet fungus? Because that is how Poppy would react. Poppy would be so angry at the doctor for snitching on his feet. And why didn't you tell me before? When I already had foot fungus, why'd you have to wait till now to tell me? And why'd you have to snitch on me like that for having foot fungus? When you could have told me way before. Now it's a little. <laughs> now the doctor is not benefiting. The well, doctor is not getting a World Series ring by keeping quiet about this foot fungus. But shouldn't you just be mad about the foot fungus? Shouldn't you say, "How can we address this? How can we fix this?" You know, the podiatrists nearby that might be able to help me and take a look at this. Do you know any fungal doctors that might be able to take a look at this? Maybe you can cut off a little chunk here off my heel and send them a sample. Let's tackle this and let's fix these feet. Uh, let's get this fungus shipped off here and cleaned up. Or would you say, hey, doc, fuck you. How dare you snitch on my foot fungus like this? And how come you didn't tell me before? Uh, let's just take a step back here. Why don't we play the blame game and think about, is it the person telling us the news who's the problem or is it the news that's the problem? Is it the message or the messenger 
and then let's react in that way. Poppy, would love to have you on the show here to discuss your views on this. Um, I'm not saying you definitely did steroids. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. You're still listening to I'm Open. You can follow us on Instagram at imopen underscore pod and let us know what you want to hear about on our next episode. Everybody, enjoy the rest of the show. I need to come clean and, um, and apologize to somebody. And, you know, I'm man enough to do that. I'm mature enough to do that. I think we have a tendency in this world, in this media bubble, when somebody changes their mind to be like, you flip-flopped, you switched up. How come you're not the same as you were day one? Uh, well, guess what? That's life. My mind changes all the time. If you've never, ever, ever changed your mind in your whole life, that's called being closed-minded. And this is the I'm Open Fucking Podcast. You already know about that. We're open-minded around here. You have to be open to the fact that there might be things that you don't know. There might be things that you don't fully understand. There might be things that you need to learn more about to really formulate an opinion on them. I used to not like Brussels sprouts. Then I tasted them and realized that it's just that the name sounds kind of weird and gross, but I actually like how they taste. Now I like them. Did I switch up? Am I a punk little bitch because I changed my opinion on Brussels sprouts? Maybe I am. <laughs> but to me, I'm glad that I have now the opportunity to enjoy Brussels sprouts. I used to not shave my face because I couldn't grow hair out of my face. Now I do because I can grow hair out of my face. Is my face a little punk ass bitch for switching up and deciding to grow hair? Am I a soft little flip-flopper like John Kerry because I shave my face now and I used to not shave my face? You can be the judge of that. You can DM me back at I'm open underscore pod on Instagram and let me know if you think I'm a little flip-flopping bitch because I shave my face now and I used to not. And I totally switched up my life because now I can grow hair out of my face in my older years. So our opinions can change. And that's life. And that's growing. That's learning. You know, I say this because I want to take this opportunity to apologize to my guy, Jameis Winston, famous Jameis. Now, we've talked about him a couple times on the show, and I don't have any hard, hard feelings towards him. I love his confidence. I've told you guys about that before. We are joking a little bit about his historic propensity for interceptions, and he did have a historic season this year in the NFL becoming the first player ever to have over 30 touchdowns, 30 interceptions, and lead the league in passing yardage. Really an incredible season. You knew something exciting was going to happen every single fucking time he touched the ball. Whether it was disastrous, exciting, or somewhere in between, it was not going to be boring. And for that, we thank you, Jameis. And... We joked about his interceptions and everything and, you know, Bruce Arians, his coach, we talked about this with Evan as well. They asked him 
if he thinks we could win with Jameis again. And basically he was like, if we can win with Jameis, we can win with anybody, which is very nice to say about him. And, and we were protective of Jameis too. So I'm not trying to say that we've just been cooking Jameis the entire time and have hard feelings towards him, because I don't. But um, news has just come out that famous Jameis will be getting LASIK eye surgery before, before uh, the season starts back up. Now, it turns out the entire time, Jameis has been nearsighted. So, you know, according to eyeglassesguide.com, nearsighted, also called myopia, is a term to describe an eye condition that lets you clearly see objects that are near or close to you while objects in the distance appear blurry or hazy. So no wonder the guy was throwing so many fucking interceptions. No wonder he was. Let's give him a break. Let's give him a break here. How hard would it be to throw the ball deep down the field where all you can just see is like a bunch of pixelated blurs that look like a fucking Monet painting? And, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about because we're we're a very well-learned group with a lot of different interests. And, you know, when we impressionist art, when you look up really close, it looks like just a bunch of blurs and dots. But then if you stand back in the back of the room, you're like, oh, shit, it was a castle, right? Oh, it was a tree with a bird on it. But up close, it just looks like a bunch of blobs. And that must have been, I'm just trying to put myself in James's shoes here. That must have been when everything looked like. Now, he's trying to throw down the field to Chris Godwin or Mike Evans. But all he sees is a bunch of little blurs. So, you know, luckily, Mike Evans is a beast. And sometimes you just throw the ball up as high as you can and he can catch it. And it works out a decent amount of time, enough for Jameis to throw 30 touchdowns, more than 30 touchdowns. And, you know, that's not even to mention, and now I'm not a doctor or definitely not an eye doctor, so I'm not totally sure the connection to color, to the, you know, color blindness, seeing color and nearsightedness, etc. But, you know, I, I just feel so guilty now because I was trolling Jameis for, oh, do you know which color your team's even wearing? You throw it to the other team just as much as you throw to your team. And maybe the guy just didn't, maybe he genuinely thought he was throwing to his team. So I'm sorry, Jameis. And, and I'm putting in a prediction right now, even though we haven't even had the draft. We haven't even had free agency. Jameis, after these harsh words from his coach, Bruce Arians, I mean, there's a decent chance that he'll be back on another team next year. He won't be wearing the pewter and <laughs> the pewter and red of the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And yes, if you're wondering what pewter is, it's kind of like a brownish bronze, and that is their official color. They probably have the ugliest uniforms in football. So he will not be wearing. There's a good chance he will not be wearing the Buccaneer pewter next year. But I'm I'm putting in my prediction right now. Jameis Winston will be your 2020, well, I guess it'll be announced in 2021, but 2020-2021 season NFL MVP. That's next season. And I'm telling you guys right now, this guy threw for 33 touchdowns and over 5,000 passing yards, and he's nearsighted. So you figure only the guys, only maybe screen passes, short passes within 5, 10 yards of the line of scrimmage, did he actually really know who the hell he was throwing the ball to. All the other ones, it's just like a guessing game out there. It's just rolling, rolling the old roulette ball around the circle, just hoping Mike Evans comes down with it or Chris Godwin. And next year, with the renewed vision, maybe renewed confidence from a coach who's not going to be making snarky comments about him to the media, 
Jameis, he is going to be your MVP next year of the league. I know we've got stars in this league. Lamar Jackson, Pat Mahomes, Tom Brady's still kicking. Drew Brees won't retire yet. The league is full of stars, but famous Jameis. He's going to come in with a new lease on life and a new understanding of the football field based on having LASIK surgery. I'm so happy for this. I'm so happy for Jameis. And I really just can't wait to see how he comes out slinging next season with his new vision. Congratulations, Jameis. And again, I'm sorry. I I hope you can bury the hatchet here. And uh, I hope you just know I've always been wanting you to succeed the whole time. And it's just great to to kind of get a little bit of an insight. Now we kind of know where all those interceptions are coming from. So I can't wait to see you out on the field next season, no matter what team you're on, no matter what colors you're wearing. Can't wait to see you throwing that ball down the field, Jameis. is election season here in the United States of America. And just slow down before you change the podcast and say, fuck this, David. This is why I listen to this podcast because I don't want to keep hearing about all the primaries, all the delegates. I'm tired of all the debates. This is why I listen to your podcast just to laugh, just to just get my mind off these things. Why are you doing this? I'm not doing it. I'm not doing that. Don't worry. I'm not doing that because the election I'm actually referring to is the election of the NBA Players Association. Now, if you haven't heard of this organization before, this is the union that represents NBA players, professional basketball players. It's their union, right? So every league, like teachers have unions, like janitors have unions, like grocery store workers have unions to protect their rights, to protect their workplace safety, etc. So do professional athletes. So... They help negotiate basically safety for the players, rules, test, you know, drug testing, as we were talking about before with uh, the whole situation with Poppy, how many players can be on a team, how much players make, all sorts of issues pertaining to labor, because it is labor, even though it's a fun job, even though it's an entertaining job, you are still working. It's really hard physical work. So they need to make sure these guys are safe at work. So, the NBA Players Association just had their new election, and the result was Kyrie Irving coming out as a new vice president of the NBA Players Union. Now, just quickly, let's explain the dynamics here and the logistics of the union and how it works. So... Being the vice president does not officially mean that Kyrie Irving is now second in command of all NBA players here in the union. Um, Chris Paul is the current sitting president. Surprise, surprise. If you know anything about Chris Paul, he literally still, and I'm not even making this up, Chris Paul still plans his high school reunions. He really takes his role as class president seriously, even though he's an NBA all-star and future Hall of Famer. And he definitely takes his role as NBA Players Association president seriously. I think he's a great man for the job. And surrounding Chris Paul, supporting Chris Paul, there's an executive committee. And I think technically every player on that executive committee, um, which includes nine players, is considered to be a vice president of the Players Association in their own right. So Kyrie isn't the only vice president, but he's one of them now, and he's the newest one. And I mean, this is just a bizarre election, but uh, as Gambino says, this is America. 
And as um, I don't know who said this one, maybe Thomas Jefferson, this is democracy. So they voted for, for Kyrie. He's the new vice president. And I just, when I saw that, I thought there had to be a typo. I was like, did are are they did they mean to write Kyrie has a new MRI, but instead they wrote Kyrie at the NBA PA? I'm like, did they miss up some letters? Did they get some wrong acronyms in here? Because let's just go back through a few steps. And you can tell me. You can tell me I'm open family. I'm not going to tell you guys how to think. I'll tell you guys what I think, but that's why it's the I'm open family. We all have open minds. I accept that you guys might disagree with me. And actually, I want you guys to disagree with me sometimes. We're not all sheep here. We're all just following, 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 right? We all think critically for ourselves, and that's why it's the fucking I'm Open family. So you tell me, you listen to this resume, you tell me now if you think Kyrie Irving would be a good representative, uh, vice president here of the NBA Players Association. So he started off his career in Cleveland with... The legend, the one and only LeBron James. You've heard of him. Big Boss. The King. King James. Everybody loves him. Everybody looks up to him. And basically, everybody wants to play with him. Right? So Kyrie, I mean, the guy lucked out. He went to Duke. Played for Coach K. He only played about 11 games, I believe, before he got injured. But even though he didn't get to fully show his skills in March Madness and and playing for Duke there, they had seen enough. They had seen him ball out in high school in New Jersey, and he was drafted number one overall. Not only was he drafted number one overall, but, you know, the year after he was drafted, a year or two after he was drafted, I think it was two years after he was drafted, LeBron James decides to leave Miami, return to Cleveland. And what's better than that? The best player in the world, one of the best players of all time, decides to come team up with you, a young Kyrie Irving, only probably about 20, 21 years old at the time. So, we all know what happened. They defeated the Warriors. Draymond Green tried to kick LeBron in the nuts. He got suspended for a couple games. Kyrie Irving hit one of the most clutch shots of all time. And the Cavs won that elusive, that magical NBA championship. So, not long after that, Kyrie Irving decided, you know what? I'd rather not play with LeBron. He's the first person who's ever really said that that I'm aware of. Now, he didn't say it to the public, but he started pushing. He became a little bit irritable, and he started pushing for a trade out of Cleveland. So, LeBron, the management of the Cleveland Cavaliers, they felt like, look, if you don't want to be with us, we don't want to be with you. Screw you. So, Kyrie, he pushes his way out of Cleveland. He wants his own team. He's used to being the alpha. Here, obviously, if there's any team with LeBron on it, LeBron's going to be the alpha. So, Kyrie, he probably had fun winning the championship. Going back to the finals year after year after year, even though they were having a tough time against the Warriors, but he had had enough and he wanted to be his own alpha. He wanted to run his own team. So he pushes for a trade and he ends up getting shipped out to Boston. Now, in Boston, at first he was saying, I want to be here for the rest of my life. I love Boston. This is the best. So excited to be here. So excited to put my banner up there with all the other championship banners. So excited to have my number up there retired with Larry Bird and Bill Russell and all the other Celtic greats. Well, that only lasted a couple weeks or maybe a couple months because soon enough, Kyrie started complaining about how difficult it was to play with young players. Basically, how annoying they were. 
talking about it like your mom is making you bring your little brother out to the movies when you really just wanted to go see something PG-13 with your friends. Now you have to go see fucking Despicable Me because you're bringing your little brother to the movies. That that That's kind of how Kyrie was acting, just frustrated, flustered. Like, I got to hang out with these young guys that don't even know what the fuck they're doing. Well, Kyrie, you were just on a team with a lot of veterans. Kevin Love, LeBron James, Tristan, Richard Jefferson, all these other guys. And you were the one who wanted to be the leader, wanted to be the alpha. You pushed to go, you get moved to a young team, and now you're complaining the guys are young. And not just privately, publicly. Publicly complaining about it, it's hard to relate to them, how they're young. Mind you, Kyrie's only like 25 at the time, so it's not like he's an old grizzled oldster. So... He's complaining in the media about being young. He even says that he reached out to LeBron, apologized to him in a whole kind of weird subtweet shady kind of thing, apologized to LeBron and said, look, man, I'm sorry. I didn't know how hard you had it. It's really difficult to play with these young players. And I am so sorry about that. And rather than just keep that between the two of them, he really publicized that to the world. So he let everybody know how frustrated he was with the young guys on Boston, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown being two of the young stars there in Boston, who, by the way, have been doing awesome ever since Kyrie left. So he has that one season in Boston. After talking about how he wants to be there forever, he immediately leaves and goes to Brooklyn. Oh, and by the way, he also has been very vocal about saying that he thinks the earth is flat. So this is the man who the NBA Players Association has just voted to be their new vice president, and I wish him all the best. Um, I guess I'm I'm pro-union, you could say. I'm a pro-union guy. I'm not sure exactly. I know Kyrie's a smart guy. I'm not trying to say he's not smart, but he's he's not tactful. There's a difference between being smart and being tactful. There's a difference between reading a lot of books and knowing how to read a room. And I do think Kyrie's a really curious guy. I think we would probably have a great conversation. I can't wait to get him here on the I'm Open Pod. Um, But I'll be curious because his leadership style didn't really go over that well in Cleveland, didn't really go over that well in Boston. And Brooklyn has been a kind of a tough lost season now with Kyrie looking like he'll be out for the rest of the season. And Kevin Durant, we already knew he was going to miss the season. So it's been a tough season here in Brooklyn. Um, And I really wish him all the best. I do. And you can decide, I'm not going to tell you if it was right or wrong, but you can decide I'm open family based on Kyrie's resume. Do you think this was the right choice or not? Our next story today brings us to the world of hockey in the NHL. A game was taking place in Toronto, Canada, between the Toronto Maple Leafs a very appropriate name for a team considering the uh, flag of Canada, and the Carolina Hurricanes, a very inappropriate name for a team considering the fact that hurricanes ravage the Carolinas every single year. So these two teams were were matching up, and we've already gone into the whole ridiculousness of, of the Carolina Hurricanes, and that might not even be the worst NHL team name going right now because there's another team called the Nashville Predators. Um... Yes, that's real. So um, <laughs> so there's a game going on here between the Hurricanes and the Maple Leafs. Hurricanes goalie, James Reimer, he went down with an injury. So then they go to the backup. That was Peter Mrazek. And then 
Mrazik, he had a, you know, he had come into the game as the backup goalie. He had a big time collision with Maple Leafs forward, Kyle Clifford, and he was forced to leave the game. So teams normally travel with two goalkeepers in hockey. Um, in soccer, you know, same thing often. And in football, usually teams have, have two or three quarterbacks and it's, it's tough. It's a weird situation. I mean, you usually don't expect all of your quarterbacks to get injured or all of your goalies to get injured. But, you know, for example, there was a famous moment, um, in the women's world cup a long time ago where the, the team USA women goalkeepers got injured and then Mia Hamm had to step in and play, play goalie for a little bit. I mean, she did great. She's a great athlete. This hasn't really happened much, I believe, in the NFL, but every team does have an emergency quarterback designated on their roster, which is basically like if every other quarterback gets hurt, who would be the next quarterback to come in? Usually, it's probably somebody who played quarterback in high school. So in this situation, which is really bizarre, the NHL rule is to literally have a backup goalie in the stands during the game. And it's basically like a civilian just jumps into the game. It's like Superman going into the phone booth in his Clark Kent uniform and coming back out as Superman. So this is literally what happened in 2020, this year. This is the actual rule the NHL still uses. There's a gentleman by the name of David Ayers who lives in Canada, uh, lives in the Toronto area in Canada. And he's a Zamboni driver. He he drives to, to, to clean the ice there at Scotiabank Arena in Toronto. He is also he, – he works uh, with the guys practicing. They, they practice shooting on him. So he has practiced – you know, he it's not like he's never been a goalie before, but he is not a professional hockey player. He is not an NHL player. And one – once the second goalkeeper went down, Peter Mrazek, they started calling David Ayers. They said, look, man, you got to get down here. You got to get changed up. And we need you to go out there on the ice for the Hurricanes. Now, I'm sure it was really a weird moment for him. Obviously, it's like your first NHL game ever. He's 42 years old. He's a rookie, I guess, a one-game rookie now. And his team, I would guess, I mean, he's from Ontario. I would guess that he roots for the Toronto Maple Leafs and he even, you know, Zambonis the ice for them. So I'm sure he was a little bit torn. At the same moment, it's the most exciting, probably one of the most exciting moments of your life. A dream come true at 42 years old to now be on the ice with NHL professionals and have your little five minutes of fame or hour of fame or whatever it was as a professional hockey player. But at the same time, he's going against the team he roots for, the Maple Leafs, the team that he's probably rooted for his whole life. So I'm sure he was feeling a bit torn. And as soon as he got into the game, immediately the first two shots went into the goal. And it looked like, holy shit, this is why you don't pull a guy out of the stands to come in and play against professional hockey players. But after that, he stopped eight more shots that were, were taken on his goal. And he held overall, the the Maple Leafs were only scored, or only scored three goals, Carolina scored six, and the Carolina Hurricanes actually beat the Maple Leafs 6-3 with a goalie who was a Zamboni driver who they had literally just pulled out of the audience. This is not fake. This is real. Now, they did say he was paid $500 and he gets to keep his jersey, which is pretty cool. This is from the New York Times via the Associated Press. 
the actual words, the sentiment from Ayers, David Ayers, as he was about to go onto the ice. He said, I had a couple of text messages that told me to get in there. I hadn't seen the footage. I was in the media room by myself, and a guy came in and said, get going, get ready. It was wild. It was fun. And then about his uh, teammates, his temporary teammates on the Hurricanes, he said, these guys were awesome. They said to me, have fun with it. Don't worry about how many goals go in. This is your moment. Have fun with it. Now, it sounds awesome that they just supported him, right? They just said, go out, have fun, even though they thought, look, we might lose with this guy. Let's just give him some confidence. Let's just make sure he's lighthearted and just out here playing and just, just lose and having fun. And that's exactly what they did. And it totally worked out. And it's awesome. But... Hockey, there's some weird things about it, right? The guys are allowed to fight. The guys are actually supposed to fight during the games. And this is probably even weirder than the fighting, that you just pull a guy out. I'm not going to say he's a random guy because I don't even like the word random. Nobody's random. Everybody's special in their own way. But you pull a guy who's the third backup goalie who's just like the local Zamboni driver who loves hockey and he's like, yeah, I'll do it. I mean, five, first of all, they should have given him a little bit more than 500 bucks. These guys make millions of dollars. I mean, each game check is for these players is probably worth thousands and thousands of dollars. 500 doesn't seem like very much considering he just won and helped the Hurricanes win a game. I know like $500 is a lot. I would love $500 if you were giving it for, to me, but to actually play in an NHL game, he should be making more than 500 bucks. He should definitely be making a couple thousand dollars. That's my opinion. I mean, come on. The game was on TV. There was a lot of people that paid to go see the game. Give the guys some, give the guys due, but I'm sure he didn't care about the money. I'm sure he's just so happy that he finally got his chance in the spotlight there on the ice. But this is the only sport where this could ever work. And I guess it works. I guess in hockey, you have so many pads um, that you can, if you're the goalie, you can just use them to block. I'm still a little confused why they can't just get one of the other players on the team to just put on the goalie pads and just get one of the defensemen or one of the other guys just to be the backup goalie for that day. I'm kind of don't really get that one because to totally pull somebody out of the stands, like, first of all, if you try to just pull somebody out of the stands in a football game to be like the next quarterback or the punter or whatever, they might get killed. It would not be pretty. Okay, the way football players run and move around, watching a game on TV or playing Madden does not prepare you, even playing high school, does not prepare you to play against professional NFL football players. I mean, we see, we see actual NFL players get crushed and lit up and juked out of their shoes every week. So now you're going to tell me we're pulling just a guy out of the stands to come Play, play running back or, or defensive back or kicker, I don't think that would work at all. That would be a huge health risk and liability. Even basketball. Basketball, you don't think of it as being the most physical sport or the most, like, it's not like a huge contact sport on, the, on paper, but there is a lot of contact in basketball. You're jostling for rebounds. You're running and jumping. And part of it is just, you could hurt a player, like these guys are all running and moving so fast. You might just be moving too slow. Like we don't want LeBron James or Steph Curry or James Harden to just be moving too fast and trip over some slow, unathletic guy who they have to bring in from the stands and then twist their ankle and be out for the season. That would be an absolute disaster. When LeBron or Giannis or, you know, one of these guys goes up for a dunk or a layup, these guys are flying through the air. 
their heads are like 10 to 12 feet in the air. Okay, so their knees are probably going to, if you're just a normal human like myself, you know, and I'm a good athlete, I'm, I can handle myself on the court or on the field, but if I was on the court with somebody like LeBron James or Giannis, I would probably have every single one of my ribs broken. Not on purpose, of course, and not because they're mean guys, not because they want to, it's just the way their bodies move and just how big their bodies are. LeBron James is about 6'8", 275 pounds running down the court. And if he jumps, his shin is going to hit straight into my chest and probably just probably just explode my chest cavity in one single motion. His knee will probably just break my eye socket in an instant. And not because LeBron's a mean guy. He's a super nice guy. And he would never want to do that to me. But it's just unsafe for me. It's unsafe for him. He might trip over me and sprain an MCL or something or, or fall down awkwardly. Just because I can't keep up, I can't move as quickly as he can. So it's kind of just bizarre that hockey, I really can't think of any other instance or any other profession where you just have somebody waiting in the audience, even Broadway, even theater, which is another obviously big performance. You have understudies, right? So if somebody's sick, if the lead is sick, you have somebody from the ensemble who's ready to jump in, an understudy who's ready to jump in maybe and take that role for the night. You don't just have somebody sitting in the audience and you call them after act two and like, oh my God, uh, the lead just tripped during the dance number and sprained his ankle. Could you be able to get backstage really quick in a minute and change up? I mean, it's ridiculous just to pull somebody out of the audience to go into the game or go onto a stage for a show. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I think it's like, <sighs> it's 2020, everybody. It's 2020, guys. It's 2020. Is this really still the rule that you have some 42-year-old Zamboni driver waiting and, you know, beef 114 for his name to get called just in case three goalies get injured? Like, is this the best thing we can come up with? And this isn't like the first time this ever happened. It's not like a Haley's Comet. It's not like a, oh my God, Haley's Comet situation. You've never, no, like this happens like every year or so that there's kind of through attrition. A couple of these guys get injured and they need to pull somebody in from the stands. And I'm just eventually somebody's going to get hurt or it's not going to go well. I know with the goalie, you're not really out like skating around the ice. You're not really like interacting one-on-one -on -one with other players. You're trying to block shots, but it just seems like a really stupid rule. And I'm really, I mean, that being said, I'm really happy for David Ayers. This is super exciting that he got his moment. And I would really love to get him on I'm Open to talk about his experience being the backup to the backup. You know, thinking that, you know, he's supporting the Maple Leafs, he's there for the Maple Leafs, but then actually ends up being a member of the Hurricanes and just for a night and I support I It's awesome. I mean, they should make a movie about this guy. It's so awesome. But it just seems like we need to come up with a new rule or a new solution or a new way to do this. And I'm surprised that this is still, this is still in 2020, the best they can come up with. But shout out to David Ayers. I don't have any hockey jerseys i don't really rep much hockey like gear but if i do i might have to get the david Ayers number 90 carolina hurricanes jersey to shout out to this guy a hero from among us a civilian thrust into the spotlight who kind of lived out the dreams of so many middle-aged guys around the world thinking, man, if I just had one chance to get on the ice with these guys, I bet I could stop a few shots. I bet I could contribute. And that's exactly what he did. So shout out to David Ayers. But NHL, come on, guys. Just 
there's got to be some better solution than this. I'm Open Family. As we all know, there's something that we do every single time, every single episode before we say goodbye. That is to acknowledge our Mask Off Performer of the Week. Of course, this segment is inspired by Future. And sidebar, it Future's coming out hot, dropping a couple songs here. I was joking about Future and Drake forming a boy band with Evan just a couple episodes ago, and they've dropped a couple singles here together. I am crossing my fingers so fucking hard that these two gentlemen drop another album together this summer. I'm hoping it might happen. Thank you, Future, in advance if you're going to make this happen, and thank you for inspiring our Mask Off segment. Mask Off. Fuck it, mask off. Mask off. Fuck it, mask off. This week, the Mask Off Award goes to a Dallas Cowboys legend. No, it's not Zeke Elliott. It's not Dak Prescott. It's not Emmett Smith. It's not Troy Aikman. It is Tony Romo. Now, Tony does not play for the Dallas Cowboys anymore. He retired a couple seasons ago and left to start a career in broadcasting. He now works for CBS, and he is the color commentator for their football games on Sundays during the NFL season. And a lot of people think that Tony is actually an even better broadcaster than he was a quarterback. Now, he was a good quarterback. And I always felt like he got an unfair shake there in Dallas. People were pretty angry at him for not achieving more in his Cowboys career. But to be honest, the defense was garbage the entire time he was there. And he didn't necessarily have like geniuses as as coaches either to scheme it up for him. So I think he did pretty dang good. But now, as an announcer, as a color commentator, he is shown a unique ability that no one else has really been able to do of literally predicting plays before they happen. And it shows the value of having a former player, having a former quarterback who is so cerebral and has such a great understanding of the game like Tony does. Because he can look at the way the defense is lined up, look at the way the offense is lined up, look at the way the quarterback is reacting to the defense, pointing stuff out, pointing different players out, calling different um code words for his team and Tony can literally say hey man he's about to run over to the left side hey man he's got the linebacker blitzing he's going to try to get the ball out really quick to his tight end or his slot receiver and when he calls these plays when he predicts these plays for the most part he's right he basically always gets it right which is wild so he's a really good quarterback but he's like a genius level comment color commentator and CBS has clearly recognized his talent, recognized the public appreciation for the way Tony calls these games, because they have just made it worth his while to stick around at CBS for a while longer by giving him a $17 million a year contract, which is a lot of money. I don't need to tell you that. $17 million per year. That's pretty damn good for any job. And a lot of people have come out, some players, some just random people with opinions on Twitter and Instagram and stuff, have come out and said, like, I don't understand why Tony needs to make this much money. 
He doesn't even play. People are going to watch football anyway. And, you know, they have a point. He does not play football anymore. I mean, he might like with his friends, you know, on Thanksgiving or something, but he does not play professional football anymore. That's definitely true. And I do think there's some truth to the to the opinion that, yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter if Tony Romo's calling the game. It really doesn't matter who's calling the game. People are going to watch football either way. I mean, everybody was making fun of this past season, Booger McFarland, who was the color commentator for Monday Night Football, which is a super prime time slot. And he's basically has the same job as Tony Romo. And he's just egregiously terrible at it. And he'll make comments like, they really need to score some points here or things that um, basically speak for themselves and don't really need to be spoken out loud. But people still watch Monday Night Football every week, even though, you know, the Booger's not the most inspiring or enlightening uh, speaker there on Monday Night Football, doing the commentary. People still watch. So I can see why folks would say, I mean, is Tony Romo really worth $17 million? But when you think about it, football is one of CBS's entertainment properties, just like, you know, the James Corden show, right? Or just like Young Sheldon or whatever, right? These are all things that CBS wants to have on the air to make money, to sell ads. And I would bet that one of their highest earning, one of their most popular programs that they have is football. So here's a little context for CBS. Now, NCIS Los Angeles, that was another big show on CBS. And Ladies Love Cool James, or as you might know, LL Cool J, he was a leading actor on that show. And LL as a member of NCIS Los Angeles, made about 150000 per episode. I think you could argue, and I probably would argue, that Tony Romo's job is a lot harder than LL Cool J's job acting on NCIS LA. I mean, what is each episode like a half hour? He's not in the whole episode. So maybe you're acting for like 10 or 15 minutes of screen time. It's not like LL had to go into like some sort of a crazy muse cage, shout out Kobe, and be like, I'm changing the person I am. I'm character acting this one so I can do NCIS LA. Like, it's not that crazy intense. Probably doesn't have that many lines to learn. It's not like he has like crazy emotional monologues where he has to break down crying and stuff. Maybe a couple. But, you know, Tony, when you think about it, that's like a four or five hour commitment each game, doing the pregame and the postgame and then the full game. He's on. He's focused the whole time. It's every Sunday, every weekend, and then the playoffs as well. So you're talking about 20 weekends in a row. So then you're like, well, Tony Romo's making like a million dollars per week of work. And yeah, okay. It's a lot of fucking money. You're not going to get me to say, oh, that's not a lot of money. But when you think about the amount of people that watch football on CBS, how valuable it is for CBS to also keep Tony Romo, who's pretty widely recognized at this point as the best color commentator, keep him from ESPN so he doesn't go there, so he doesn't go to NBC or Fox or one of the other competitors. That's a huge value as well. They're paying him like they pay their top actors, their top talent, like James Corden or like Young Sheldon or like LL Cool J. So it's been an interesting dynamic too, because I think even though you know, players look out for players. Players protect each other. Players want each other to succeed. 
some players have even been like, well, this is crazy. I mean, Tony Romo, he's making $17 million a year. That's more than his salary any season during his entire career as a member of the Dallas Cowboys. Now, that's he did have bonuses. So his higher his highest just salary, just base salary on paper any season was about eight and a half million. Still pretty good. Wouldn't wouldn't sneeze at that at all. But the way uh football contracts are are structured and the way a lot of contracts are structured, if you sign, for example, like a five year contract worth seventy million dollars, you set it up or your agent sets it up. So you just get thirty million just in the first year. And a lot of that doesn't actually count as salary. It counts as signing bonus towards the future years. So you just get like $30 million the first year and then you get paid like $4 million the next couple years. So, I mean, as a member of the Dallas Cowboys, he did receive bonuses of $11 million, $12 million, $16 million, and $25 million all at separate times. And he received other bonuses as well. But that technically is not part of your direct salary. That comes in when you sign a contract. It's like the incentive, like you're getting your money up front rather than waiting to get it stretched out over the length of a three or four or five year deal. But that's crazy to think about that just on paper, the salary that Tony Romo earned every season as an NFL athlete is half of the salary he now gets to make as an announcer, as a commentator. And, you know, just to compare to other guys in the league right now, Philip Rivers uh, of the Los Angeles Chargers. Now he's probably looking for a new team this offseason. Cam Newton, former MVP of the league. He brought the Carolina Panthers to the Super Bowl. He may or may not be looking for a new team this offseason himself. Both of these guys, they didn't make $17 million last season in salary. Now, I'm not sure about bonuses and incentives, but the point is these two guys who are professional quarterbacks who, yeah, they're better quarterbacks today than Tony Romo is today. They still didn't make as much as he will this upcoming season, you know, to announce the games for actually playing in the games. I mean, when you look at Lamar Jackson, the MVP of the league, second year phenom for the Baltimore Ravens, he he makes less than a million in base salary. Same with Patrick Mahomes, the Super Bowl MVP. The new, the new king of the NFL. I mean, these two guys are taking over the league. They're going to be running the league for the next 10, 15 years. And trust me, don't get all sad and worked out for them. They both have commercials. They both are going to make plenty of money throughout their careers. So don't worry about Lamar. Don't worry about Pat. They'll be fine. But it's crazy to think of you can add Lamar's salary to Pat Mahomes' salary. It's still not even close to what Tony Romo will make this upcoming season. So I understand why people are fired up. I mean, when you look at the numbers, when you just think about it on paper, it's like, holy shit, $17 million a year just to tell us what's going on in the football game? And we're going to watch the football game no matter what. We'd watch it if there was just like a musical soundtrack playing. We just want to watch the game. But there's 32 professional starting quarterbacks right now in the NFL. One for each team. Then when you consider that there's probably about Five or six guys coming out of college this year that will be starters in the NFL next year. There's probably a couple more guys in college right now. Trevor Lawrence of Clemson's a great example who could be NFL starters next year if they wanted to or were eligible to actually leave college and go pro. And then there's also a couple of backups, guys like Teddy Bridgewater or Eli Manning, depending on what you think of him, who might be able to still start for a team and be good enough to be a starter, even though they didn't necessarily start for their own team. 
So let's say, give or take, there's about 40 or 50 people in the world who have the ability and skill set and talent to be a professional quarterback in the NFL and start in quarterback. Let's say there's about 40 or 50. How many people in the world can watch a game from the booth, from the skybox, and predict what the quarterback is going to do, what the play is going to happen? I would, I would guess that there's less than 50. So when you think about it like that, there's, okay, not everybody's as good as Cam Newton. Definitely very, very few people in the world who have the skill set of Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes. And trust me, they will get paid very accordingly. They will get paid way more than $17 million a year. Russell Wilson, Sierra's husband, one of the great young, and he's, well, he's not so young anymore. He's 31. One of the great quarterbacks in the league today. Super Bowl champion with the Seattle Seahawks, great leader, great person, and he will be the 49th president of the United States of America. Russell Wilson, he makes $35 million a a season, a year. So if you're awesome, if you're really one of these top-level guys, Russ Wilson, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, etc., you will get paid way more than Tony Romo makes. That goes for Patrick Mahomes. That goes for Lamar Jackson. Cream of the crop. But I think you can argue maybe Tony Romo is worth even more money. Think of how much CBS makes having all these commercials having so many millions of people watch their games every week. And then when you think of the whole infrastructure around the games, the pregame shows, the postgame shows, the shows during the week leading up to the shows, the shows having rumors in the offseason wondering who's going to go to what team, the prediction shows guessing which team is going to beat which team, right? There's a whole business, a whole infrastructure around football for CBS and for every other network. And when you consider that Tony Romo might be number one in the world at his craft, at his career, at least top three or four, you can't really argue with that. Yeah, he's worth every single penny. So congratulations to Tony Romo, the $17 million man for winning our Mask Off Award this week. Tony seems like a fun guy to just kick back, get a beer with, shoot some pool with. And that's kind of what's fun about watching games that he calls is he kind of laughs during the game and he's kind of got like a raspy voice. It feels like you're watching a game with a buddy. It doesn't feel like he's trying to put on the, well, this team's really going to play some defense here. He's just talking like a fan. You can tell he's excited when the guys make a big play or he's disappointed when they make a bad play and he's really into the game. He loves the game. He seems like a good guy. He's a funny guy. He's a fun-loving guy. And congratulations to you, Tony. We can't wait to get you on I'm Open to hear about what you're going to do with all that money. But I don't really think it's going to change his life too much. He already earned over $100 million in his career as an NFL quarterback. So I think this is, this one's just going on to the pile there. But congratulations, Tony. Get that money. Can't wait to hear you calling games this upcoming season for CBS. And trust me, buddy, you're worth every single penny. Thanks again for listening to I'm Open. Don't forget to give us a rating, write us a review, and tell a friend to listen to the show. You can follow us on Instagram at I'm Open underscore pod for one-of-a-kind content you won't find anywhere else. Everybody, have a great night, and don't forget to stay open.